Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? Nothing much, nothing much. Just hanging out and dealing with the fact that I unfortunately did not win Powerball last night. <laughs> Pretty sad about that. You know, I've never played lottery uh, ticket ever. I mean, I do it when I have a little bit of extra cash and each time I lose, um, I shed a tear. <laughs> how, much, how much you usually put into it? Um, really maybe like $6. I might try to buy like three tickets. It really, I don't carry a lot of cash. So it really depends on what I have okay. in cash because you can't pay with a debit card. So pretty sad about that. Um, maybe I'll win next week. <laughs> maybe you'll maybe you win. All I know if you win, this podcast better take off. I know. You know what? We're going to have the best of the best. We might be able to pay some guests. Yeah, pay some guests, have some golden mics. <laughs> I hear stunting on. Oh, right. too funny. What's been going on with you? I'm sad. I'm sad because my spring break is over. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> so I go back to, to work. It went by too fast. Uh, but yeah, I go back to the grind this week classes and teaching and everything like that so it is what it is it is what it is i mean this past week your spring break week has been filled with a lot of interesting news stories so i'm pretty sure you were not bored at all yeah that's true that is very true did you uh hear or read anything about the march for our lives protests uh that happened yesterday it was honoring the victims of douglas high school um i thought that was really cool because they, uh, I know at like 8 p.m. they had more than 4,000 new uh, students or young people registered to vote. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I was really excited or appreciated hearing David Hogg. He is one of the white male activist students. He's been on a lot of news outlets. I think he has a lot of followers now, but I really appreciated him because He called out the media on not giving black students a voice in the wake of the shooting. He said that 25 percent of Douglas high school students are African-American and they haven't really been portrayed in the media as also victims of school shootings. So I appreciate him um, and calling it out. And I'd like to hear more from, you know, Black students who have been affected not just by the Parkland shooting, but other other school shootings, because there have been so many in the past few years. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really important. Uh, I watched some of the Douglas High School, well, not high school, but the the uh, March for Our Lives rally on the news yesterday, uh, probably about an hour or so tuning on and off, going back and forth, checking the channel, the news channels. It was pretty good. You know, a lot of good performances, a lot of good speeches. Mainly all the speeches are pretty much from from teenagers, from high school students and younger. Uh, but going to the point you're talking about, one of the more profound things that I saw was uh, this young black girl, Naomi Wadler. Uh, she's been going viral all over Instagram and everywhere, Twitter, and all that stuff. Uh, and she pretty much spoke to that piece saying, you know, I'm here to represent all the young black girls who go unnoticed to gun violence, the ones that don't make national headlines or the evening yeah. news. Uh, I think that was very, very powerful. 
um, because it's right. When we hear these these tra- travesties happening uh, most of the time, especially with the Parkland school shooting, right? 17 kids, 14 of them were white, right? It was in a very mm-hmm. affluent area. And so it was good to actually even hear the students from that school saying, listen, yes, this happened to us, but this is happening to, in communities of color all the time. The CDC has some stats talking about, you know, uh, black children are 10 times more likely to die from gun violence than the other group. But we don't we don't hear these things. We don't see these stories. They don't make the news. So it's good when they had that national platform that people like David, that people like Naomi were actually highlighting the fact and say, hey, let's not forget about the communities of color that go unnoticed with these travesties happen more often there than than in these white communities. Mm -hmm. I think it's related to who we see as victims Mm -hmm. and who we see as implicated in their own uh, tragic circumstances. I think that has a lot to do with who is chosen by the media as victims and who needs help. You know, I completely support what the students are doing, especially since they are speaking to, I think it was David Hogg or maybe one of the other students who talked about the need to use their privilege to actually shed light on other issues. And so thinking about the many protests that these students are having, I I can't, as, as much as I support these student protests, I hope that especially with them calling out the media, especially with them speaking about their own privilege to be able to have these protests and to be widely supported by the general public. I hope that we can take that same stance in the future when we think about protests for black lives or protests against shooting victims who are black. And so I hope that we can have the same understanding, the same support and the same encouragement in the future for protests that are led by people of color or led by women of color or people who are not at the forefront of privilege in terms of their various identities. So again, I can't help but notice the differences. I don't want to use that as a way to say we should not be having, you know, these protests that are led by these awesome students. It's just I hope that same support and understanding can translate to protests that are led by black activists or Latino activists or uh, trans activists. I I just hope that we can get to that space. Mm -hmm. And I think I like, you know, what you said, piggybacking off what you said when, you know, when they're calling out the media, that's important. And that's something that is nothing new. And, you know, the media hasn't really changed their perspective as far as how they disseminate this information and how they portray victims and perpetrators. Because, again, like you said, when you talk about victims, a lot of times when the victims are black and if the perpetrator is black, right, it's like, oh, this is normal or they're really victims or it's black on black crimes. But even when we see in Parkland, mm-hmm. you know, the perpetrator was white. Almost all the victims were white. But that same, you know, victimization and perpetrator, like, oh, this guy was really bad. And, and it's not nobody's talking about white on white crime. It's just crime and a horrible thing. It makes national news. Right. So I think there's a big part to that. And even more recently, when we see what happened with the Austin bombings, um, how the media is portraying that, which really, really frustrated me. Um, I think this is why it's good that we can talk about this now, because all this information is these news articles are really current. But yeah, with Mark Anthony Condit, right, 24 year old who most would consider a terrorist. But in the media, Mm -hmm. I'm reading articles from like CNN, et cetera, where they're saying, you know, 
family members, oh, he's such a good guy. You know, we would never expect him to do this. You know, we don't know how this happened, yada, yada, yada. But again, many people are arguing if this person was black or Middle Eastern or Muslim, terrorism be getting thrown out there all the time. Tim Wise posted Mm -hmm. an article the other day on Facebook and I had reposted it and he was saying that, you know, this kid, Mark Anthony, was a um, a part of a Christian survivalist group where he learned how to make these kind of chemical weapons, right? So if, you, if this was a, reframed in a different way, where it was a Muslim 24-year-old who learned how to make these chemical weapons in a Muslim survivalist group, right? Oh my God, terrorism, 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 right? So it's just yeah. sick how they don't even draw those connections because he's a white Christian and that linked to terrorism and doing these kind of acts are, are, you know, just excused in a way. I think what pissed me off the most uh, about the portrayal of Mark Condon in the media is that he was 24, 23 or 24, but they used his high school photos to portray Mm. him as this good Christian kid. And when I think about Trayvon Martin, how people were using, you know, what I would call teenage pics, because I I won't lie. I am a Harvard PhD student now, but you could probably find a photo of me from my teenage years, maybe sticking up a bird or something. Actually, I I (laughs) can because I, I, but like those were the images that they wanted to use to portray Trayvon Martin or uh, Mike Brown when, you know, they have nice photos too, but it's interesting that they wanted to use the high school photos of Mark Condon when there were current photos and he did not like look like an innocent, harmless mm-hmm. kid that they are trying to portray mm-hmm. him as. Mm-hmm. And these are things that we don't pay unless and- you see him side by side, right? Mm-hmm. Another thing was there was a student and um, one of the victims of the Austin school shooting. And we're just now he- starting to hear more about him. You know, he plays mm-hmm. instruments um, and it's we focus also on this. We focus more on Mark Condon and less on the victims who happen to be mm-hmm. black, at least two of them. Am I correct? Two. Oh, two I victims? think. Yeah, I think maybe three. Uh um, or three were, but at least two for sure. But I think it might have been three, three of the four were black. But I know you're talking about the one high school kid who was uh, played instruments. I think he played like the ch- cello or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah, was, like, really good at it, and you know stuff like that. Man, it just it just sucks. Um, even you know the conversation going on with the most recent police shooting uh, with um, uh, that happened. Was it Sa- where was it Sacramento? Oh, yes. The guy in his backyard who was shot like 20 times by police officers. Um, And, you know, Mm -hmm. the thing about it, I seen video of them actually chasing him and all this other kind of stuff. I mean, they were chasing. It's like, why do you need that much force? The call was for somebody called in and said, hey, we think there's a kid or somebody breaking car windows. Right. I mean, it's breaking car windows, not shooting up people and 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 violent. And so like the amount of force and, and effort they put in to catch this kid and then how much of a threat they saw him when he was hiding in his own backyard. I mean, he was running, you know, running away. It wasn't like he mm-hmm. was 
coming at them and try to fight. He was doing what people do from the police, which is normal. They run, you know, he was high and then he hide behind um, in his own backyard. And then again, this, this amount of fear, right? Uh, why, why 20 bullets, 20 shots? Why, why? You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. Many people, many, I've seen a couple of police officers saying that, you know, you're supposed to reassess after you shoot a couple bullets, you know, you shoot two or three and then you stop mm-hmm. to see if there's still a threat. Um, but it's like, they just went ham on that kid, man. He had two kids and it's just like, Really, really sad to see all of this stuff happening. You know, his name was Stefan. You know, mm, yeah. And speaking of saying their names, because it's important that we say their names, the Austin 17 year old um, who was actually recently accepted into a very selective music program, the Butler School of Music at the University of Texas at Austin. His name is Draylen Mason. So we should say his name because mm-hmm. it's important that we name and we give a, a voice to um, victims yes. of violence, not just white victims of violence, which we should call that out as well, but also black victims. I would say this conversation right now that we're having about the differences in response to and the framing of issues that impact the black community versus the same issues or similar issues that impact the white community. It makes me think about Mm -hmm. our topic today and and the opioid crisis, um, which that has recently been in the news as well, just just past Monday. And I, I can't help but to think of, and we'll get into this conversation, the role of race and politics and class and how we frame the opioid crisis versus how the crack epidemic, uh, it wasn't even called a crisis mm-hmm. back then, but how that's framed and how that framing shapes our response, governmental response, media response, and the public response to issues that impact communities um, across race and class. Mm-hmm. And I think when we have this conversation, right, and I, I hope all you listeners could pull from it, this idea, what, what Daphne talked about earlier, and we kind of talked about now of, of who has a right to be a victim in a way, uh, because it's like when we talk about opioid use, it's a terrible thing. And these kids who are overdosing are like victims, right, of this mm-hmm. epidemic in a lot of way. And this drug epidemic was not the first in our country. We will talk about and compare it to what happened with crack, uh, crack cocaine and in black communities and how the kids there and the communities there were not seen as victims of this epidemic. Mm -hmm. It was a fault of Mm -hmm. their own and the response was completely different. It wasn't soft. It wasn't, it was punitive uh, and it destroyed communities and families. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we see today stems from that particular time period. Um, So, you know, I think, I think this is a really much needed conversation to be had again, Trump, uh, about six or seven days ago, did a speech in New Hampshire proposing his new opioid uh, reform kind of plan of, you know, how he wants to address it. And he three pronged approach, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but a lot of the narrative um, is a bit way softer than it was compared mm-hmm. to what happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s with crack mm-hmm. cocaine. So, you know, and we want to highlight those differences for you all today so you can have a good a good sense of information when you're when you're hearing these things and be able to have a good reference point of which direction to take it. And we just want to inform you and be a resource for you all while this debate is currently agreed, happening. Agreed, agreed. So I I feel like we should get, get straight into it. All right, yeah, let's hop into it. Now we need your support again. 
Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. From the beginning of our administration, we've taken strong steps to do something about this horror. Tonight, I can report to you that we've made much progress. 37 federal agencies are working together in a vigorous national effort. And by next year, our spending for drug law enforcement will have more than tripled from its 1981 levels. We have increased seizures of illegal drugs. Shortages of marijuana are now being reported. Last year alone, over 10,000 drug criminals were convicted and nearly $250 million of their assets were seized by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Despite our best efforts, illegal cocaine is coming into our country at alarming levels and four to five million people regularly use it. 500,000 Americans are hooked on heroin. One in 12 persons smokes marijuana regularly. Today, there's a new epidemic, smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an explosively destructive and often lethal substance which is crushing its users. It is an uncontrolled fire. From the early days of our administration, Nancy has been intensely involved in the effort to fight drug abuse. I'm especially concerned about what drugs are doing to young mothers and their newborn children. Listen to this news account from a hospital in Florida of a child born to a mother with a cocaine habit. Nearby, a baby named Paul lies motionless in an incubator, feeding tubes riddling his tiny body. He needs a respirator to breathe and a daily spinal tap to relieve fluid buildup on his brain. Only one month old, he's already suffered two strokes. Now you can see why drug abuse concerns every one of us, all the American family. Drugs steal away so much. They take and take until finally, every time a drug goes into a child, something else is forced out, like love and hope and trust and confidence. Drugs take away the dream from every child's heart and replace it with a nightmare. And it's time we in America stand up and replace those dreams. There's no moral middle ground. Indifference is not an option. We want you to help us create an outspoken intolerance for drug use. For the sake of our children, I implore each of you to be unyielding and inflexible in your opposition to drugs. I will announce tomorrow a series of new proposals for a drug-free America. Taken as a whole, these proposals will toughen our laws against drug criminals, encourage more research and treatment, and ensure that illegal drugs will not be tolerated in our schools or in our workplaces. Winning the crusade against drugs will not be achieved by just throwing money at the problem. Your government will continue to act aggressively, but nothing would be more effective than for Americans simply to quit using illegal drugs. Turn on the evening news or pick up the morning paper and you'll see what some Americans know just by stepping out their front door. Our most serious problem today is cocaine and in particular crack. Who's responsible? Let me tell you straight out. Everyone who uses drugs, everyone who sells drugs, and everyone who looks the other way. This, this is crack cocaine. 
seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It could easily have been heroin or PCP. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones and it's murdering our children. Let there be no mistake, this stuff is poison. When four-year-olds play in playgrounds strewn with discarded hypodermic needles and crack vials, it breaks my heart. When cocaine, one of the most deadly and addictive illegal drugs is available to school kids, school kids, it's an outrage. And when hundreds of thousands of babies are born each year to mothers who use drugs, premature babies, born desperately sick, and even the most defenseless among us are at risk. From personal experience, families, communities, and citizens across our country are currently dealing with the worst drug crisis in American history, and even, if you really think about it, world history. This is all throughout the world. Last year, we lost at least 64,000 Americans to overdoses. That's 175 lost American lives per day. That's seven lost lives per hour in our country. Drug overdoses are now the leading cause of unintentional death in the United States by far. More people are dying from drug overdoses today than from gun homicides and motor vehicles combined. Think of it. Motor vehicle crashes, gun homicides, more people by far from drug overdoses. These overdoses are driven by a massive increase in addiction to prescription painkillers, heroin, and other opioids. Last year, almost one million Americans used heroin, and more than 11 million abused prescription opioids. The United States is by far the largest consumer of these drugs, using more opioid pills per person than any other country by far in the world. Opioid overdose deaths have quadrupled since 1999 and now account for the majority of fatal drug overdoses. Who would have thought? No part of our society, not young or old, rich or poor, urban or rural, has been spared this plague, drug addiction, and this horrible, horrible situation that's taken place with opioids. In West Virginia, a truly great state, great people, there is a hospital nursery where one in every five babies spends its first days in agony. Because these precious babies were exposed to opioids or other drugs in the womb, they endure nausea, pain, anxiety, sleeplessness, and troubling eating just the same as adults undergoing detox. Some of these children will likely lose one or both of their parents to drug addiction and overdose. They will join the growing ranks of America's opioid orphans. Such beautiful, beautiful babies. Beyond the shocking death toll, the terrible measure of the opioid crisis includes the families ripped apart and for many communities a generation of lost potential 
and opportunity. This epidemic is a national health emergency. Unlike many of us, we've seen, and what we've seen, in our lifetimes, nobody has seen anything like what's going on now. As Americans, we cannot allow this to continue. It is time to liberate our communities from this scourge of drug addiction. Never been this way. We can be the generation that ends the opioid epidemic. We can do it. Alright, Dad, so let's talk about this war on drugs epidemic that's been going on and taking the forefront conversation in, in politics and beyond in these past year or so, but even even beyond that. Yeah, so I feel like today's uh, when we think about the drug epidemic today, the primary drug of interest or that has at least reached the media and especially thinking about um, the most recent policy uh, proposed by Trump is the opioid epidemic. Uh, unlike the 80s, we aren't talking about crack or cocaine. You know, we're talking about op opioids, prescription drug addiction, um, which is a lot different from past conversations we've had about drug addiction, drug abuse and the war on drugs. Yeah, I think, you know, with this most recent plan that Trump is putting out about his opioid crisis plan, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but before we even get to that, I think it's just important that we understand the historical implications of this, the foundations of what's going on here. This isn't the first time we've had drug epidemics um, entering in our, in our nation and the response to it and having political responses to it. And I think what is most surprising is the difference in approaches to both of what we've seen, you know, in the 70s and, and what we're seeing today with the type of drugs and who primarily it's affecting more than others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. When I think about today, how we frame or have conversations about drug addiction, it's very different uh, than the conversations we had growing up. I know today, I see more of what some people might labor, label a softer approach. I think I've seen more conversations about this being a public health issue rather than a criminal issue. Mm -hmm. And um, and for me, it's like I I am really trying to untangle or really trying to understand what accounts for that difference? Is it because of the types of drugs that are used? Again, now we're talking about opioids, prescription drugs, although there has been an increase in heroin use, especially among uh, white people in the last 17, 18 years. Um, but one of the also the biggest differences is who the users and the dealers are. Now the face of the opioid addiction 
is middle America. It's white people. And that is in stark contrast to um, portraits, historical portraits where drug addiction was associated with crackheads, which is the term that they used to use, which was also a very racialized concept. So for me, I'm really trying to untangle like what accounts for potential differences in how we are thinking about drug addiction now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to that. Um, and I think when we look at, and there's been two parts to the conversation. Well, not really two parts, but people who are witnessing what's going on now and then people who live through what happened in the 70s. And many people are highlighting the fact that there are stark racial differences between the response in the 70s and the response of what we're seeing now. Largely, the drug of focus in the 70s was crack cocaine specifically. And now the drug of focus is opioid addiction. And what we've been seeing, and I think partially with popular movies or documentaries like 13th, um, another documentary called The House I Live In, uh, books like Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, right, have highlighted um, some of the racial implications of what went on in the 70s and how it affected the black community today over these past 30, 40 year period. Um, And then, like you said, yes, now the response with the opioid addiction primarily being the focus within white communities, mainly white affluent suburban communities, also in middle America, but also in big places that people really don't talk about, like uh, happening in places like New Hampshire, uh, which is, mm. you know, having really high rates of opioid addiction. I think this is where President Trump gave his talk about, you know, un- unraveling his new plan today in that state because it's been one of the places hit the hardest when it comes to opioid addiction. Um, so so let's let's get into a little bit of the historical implications first of drug addiction, political response to it, and then let's see if we can make our way to make sense of what's going on today and some of the stark differences that we're noticing. I, I think that might be a good idea. Um so in terms of history, I think when people generally think about the political response to drug addiction, or at least the historical response to drug addiction um, and the war on drugs, or they actually start with the war on drugs, which um, they associate with uh, Ronald Reagan um, and very punitive responses to dealing drugs as well as being addicted to drugs. Um, But I actually read a really interesting book uh, by Elizabeth Hinton. She's a historian at Harvard University, and it's called From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime. Um, And she talks about how we can't really understand the war on drugs without understanding the 20 years that preceded the war on drugs and how our nation went from being focused on addressing poverty because it started with a war on poverty um, with Johnson and the Great Society, where, you know, we wanted to have a social services approach to the issues that people in inner cities were facing. Uh, in addition to the war on poverty, Johnson also had a um, he had an anti-crime component of it. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, Johnson was president during a very tumultuous time in U.S. history. And it was in the wake of a lot of instances of civil disobedience, um, a lot of very famous or large uh, riots that 
pushed the political response away from treating issues in the inner city as a structural issue to something that is endemic or just inherent to black people. So it became a conversation less about like black structural inequality and more of a conversation about black pathology. And when that conversation or the reframing of the issues that were happening in the black community or particularly the inner city community happened, the government, uh, which at the time, uh, I think the House and the Senate was both democratically led, there was a push toward more anti-crime, punitive measures to address the issues in the inner city. Um, and so there, there are a lot of policies that happened in the 20 years between uh, the war on poverty to the war on crime, which happened just before the war on drugs. And so I, that's just kind of like beginning the conversation, but I think it's really important for us to understand that our government started with a social services, less help people in the inner city approach and move toward something that was very punishment driven and that disproportionately impacted the black community. And Reagan picked up where they left off and it has in turn devastated the black community. When we think about the response, particularly to drugs. Yeah. I think, um, when we talk about even just thinking about the civil rights movement in particular, right, one of Martin Luther King's next strategies after succeeding with the Civil Rights Act was to really, really attack poverty. And one thing is to strive for racial inequality. And then the next was to have, in essence, this kind of war on poverty or, you know, civil rights movement against poverty. I think not only did the success racial success and progression upset a lot of those who were privileged and a lot of the racists, but also I think in a capitalistic society, talking about helping the poor, right, became also more alarming. And I think you're right when you're saying that it started as a, the next phase post-civil rights was to focus on another type of civil rights, which was poverty. And I think politicians, uh, businesses, corporations really wanted to stifle that next movement. They didn't want to see that happen at all because that was going to be very damaging to what they believe a capitalist structure would look like, especially in this time period when we're talking about things like the beginnings of the Cold War, communism versus capitalism, right? And, and this American mm -hmm. democracy. So a lot of that is also entrenched in the, the fabric of politics and was one of the reasons that this economic approach feared a lot of uh, well, scared a lot of people in power. And so, you know, there's been many conversations as far as why or how do we get to this point when we talk about drug policy and crime. Some people see it as a tactic used to divide and conquer, because once you get the racial progress, now when you're talking class, right, it, it race is, is, is mixed within that, but it's supposed to bring everybody together where you have mm -hmm. poor whites, poor blacks, poor Latinos, poor whomever coming together and saying, you know what, we need more money to, you know, feed our children, to have better schools. And so that was going to like transcend these racial barriers. And so one of the ways to divide and conquer is to 
saying that one group is more problematic than another or that one group is the reason for the the stress of another group, right? And I think this is when we begin to see the use of crack cocaine and the images that were portrayed largely focused on black communities, black women, et cetera. And that allowed poor whites to distance themselves from the plight of the black community. Although economically they were experiencing very similar lifestyles, it was a tactic used to kind of divide and conquer and allow poor whites to see themselves as a step above what the black poor blacks were uh, going through at the time. And so I think there was a lot of intention behind that because of the next the fear of what was going to come next in the movement of civil rights. Uh, And I think this is where we begin to see this use of drug and drug policy used to kind of just divide certain populations and use race for sure, like it always has been, to to divide people. No, I completely agree with that, especially when you talk about uh, media portrayals. Um, Around the same time, and I would say media, but also um, I feel like social science is implicated in that. So around the time that, you know, they began to have conversations about tackling poverty, um, which is, of course, something that, you know, plagued um, the black community for centuries, not because of their own lack of work ethic. But, you know, when we think about the policies that led up to the civil rights movement, you know, it, it wasn't about a lack of work ethic. It was about a intentional government uh, discrimination. And when we see one Johnson, we have the Civil Rights Act, we have uh, Brown v. Board of Education passing, and then again, like you said, tackling poverty, all of a sudden, uh, there was an explosion, I guess, uh, curiosity about trying to understand like the the sources of racial inequality or the sources of poverty. And there was kind of an explosion of research as well as media portrayals, particularly focusing on the black underclass. And so there was a, a Moynihan, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, I think he was a political uh, or researcher, but mm-hmm. also I think current politician. Um, and he, you know, had the report on the Negro family. Um, and he talked specifically or he talked about a lot of things in a report. So I'll, you know, be honest, it's a very long report. But what politicians um, latched on to was this notion of the tangle of pathology or black pathology, which, you know, like I mentioned before, placed the the sources of inequality on something that was inherent to the black community or black culture, it turned into this cultural issue of there being something wrong with black people um, or black culture. And that portrayal or that particular storyline picked up in the media, but it also picked up among politicians and those biases about what goes on in the black family or goes on in black culture essentially influence the way politicians began to think about crafting a social policy to address issues Mm -hmm. in urban areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's because, especially when we talk about race, there are terms that we've heard like dog whistle politics, but also colorblindness. 
because no longer were politicians allowed to use race in law and in policy explicitly. And so what I always tell my students, too, is like the idea even now with with Barack Obama when he was in office and this kind of ideal of post-racial society. And I right? uh, and I think after the passing of the civil rights, people were like, oh, well, you know, race isn't a problem anymore. We can wipe that clean. But no, there were still racists in office holding positions of power who still did not black, like black folks for whatever reasons and hated people of color. So just because they can no longer use race or black, African-American, Latino, whatever it is in the, the policies explicitly, they wanted to find new ways to still oppress the black community. And so by doing that, uh, you see these the conversations of uh, things like, OK, OK, crack cocaine, right, uh, being infiltrated in the communities. And this, and this is well documented. Right. During the 70s, we see that the cocaine became much more prevalent within all around the nation, but more specifically in communities of color that had to do with some of the political um, things happening in Nicaragua, the Iran-Contra movement, et cetera, where politicians kind of you know, turn their shoulders or look the other way and allowed uh, people in places like Colombia and Nicaragua to transport drugs into this country because they were taking care of things for them uh, with the rebel movements in, 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 uh, in Nicaragua. By Our government was giving them weapons and then trade by saying, by if you guys do this for us and take care of this government, then we'll allow you to bring drugs into this country and we'll help you. All right. Malcolm X has a famous quote where he's talking about, um, you know, why are these policies attacking drug dealers and drug users? If you're really trying to stop drugs in this country, you need to figure out the source of how the drugs are entering in. He said the black people are not the ones bringing the drugs in. In order to bring the drugs in from other countries, you have to have boats, you have to have planes, you have to have diplomatic immunity. And black folks just didn't have that. So who has the power, the privilege and the access to bring large quantities of cocaine into the country? But yet all the policies focus on drug dealers and drug users. And so there's something sick to that. But there's intention behind that, too. Right. Because those who have the power, especially in this time period, are definitely going to be white males and white politicians. Mm -hmm. And so it's Mm -hmm. and it's and, and, and like I like to tell my students, too, it's like when we when politicians, especially post civil rights, they packaged things in a way that was real pretty, that was really digestible to a mass audience. And if you really don't look carefully, you won't see the racial implications in it, because, of course, anybody's going to support policies going against drug dealers, drug addiction, drug use. Right. That's going to be something that's going to be universally accepted. But. And the practice or how it's applied is where we see these racial inequalities play out. And so even during this time period, a lot of black politicians supported these the, these policies, especially with the crack cocaine. I think there were about 21 black congressmen uh, during this time period and 11 voted yes. Right, Only about half of them voted yes to support these policies, but they did it because they wanted to see their communities do better. Right. The crack cocaine was uh, becoming an issue in the black communities. Addiction was becoming an issue. And so they supported these policies because it was it was uh, packaged in a way that made it seem like, okay, this is going to help them. And so you did have black politicians support this. 
And both political parties supported this as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. So it's one of the things we have to pay, begin to pay particular attention to how these things are packaged, because they're never going to just outright say we're doing this for racist reasons or we're doing this because we don't like black people. Even though in the past few years, right, some stuff has begun to come up, uh, even in the movie 13th by Ava DuVernay, there was a part um, where they talked about advisor, the major advisor from the Nixon campaign explicitly said, you know, um, that this is, this is his quotes, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. He said, you understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black people, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, then we criminalized both heavily. We could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders. We could raise, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Right. This is not made up. Right. This is this is from the exact mouth of a made the major leading advisor for the Nixon administration, where there was clear intent of racism here, of what they wanted to do, how they wanted to target it. But of course, they never said that when they were proposing these these things publicly. Right. So a war on drugs, a war on crime, even things like a war on terror. We accept those those themes and those and those words, but we don't really look at what they mean. Right? War on terror, mm-hmm. for example. You know, what is that? What terror is not something you can just attack or stop when we talk about war. But yet when we look at the bodies that are affected by it, of course, we're looking at people who are Muslim, people from Middle Eastern descent, right, are the ones that are the victims of such a war. But that's never said in that that rhetoric. But it's something we all run to and, and accept and adopt when the politicians spew this kind of stuff in their narrative. So I think it's important just to pay attention to the stuff that's not being said because more than likely it's going to be those most vulnerable and marginalized communities are the ones that are going to take the biggest hit. And that's what we've seen. I thought you also mentioned a very interesting point. Um, People or researchers and politicians have talked about the role of like black politicians and black community members in supporting, you know, these past policies. And it just goes to show how one Elizabeth Hinton in this book, she raises the point that first, the black community, black activists and black leaders, their vision for some of these policies were focused on, especially when it came to like increasing like police presence and and things of that nature. Some of it was about community control, community insight and being included in making their neighborhoods better. But it was uh, distorted into something else. You know, it became it, it was kind of like Frankenstein's monster. You you create something or you support something and then it just goes completely left and you have no control over it. So I think that's one important thing to mention in terms of like the black support of this. But another is uh, Hinton raised a very important point when they started to get rid of or reduce like the social service aspect of like this war on poverty, when it became more about social control and policing, you know, if there are no social services, who else can people call, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Where where else is there to go if the only option is to the only option to improve your neighborhood or to stop a immediate issue is not some type of so, social service or some type of just community program or community action network. If the only source to improve or stop an immediate issue is the police, then then somebody's going to call the police, you know? So I think it was also an issue of removing the alternatives from the community to where, you know, that's what at the moment Black activists or Black politicians is what they, is the only, one of the only things that they could support. Mm-hmm. And I want to, you know, before moving forward, I want to just really highlight how these kind of policies really impact the community because then it'll make sense too when we see the new approaches to opioid addiction and how that may impact these communities but when you like you just said you have a criminal justice response to a public health issue things can go awry in a lot of different ways and i think when we talk about the policies that were meant for crack cocaine specifically right during this time period the rhetoric was that we were being too soft on crime. Parole boards were just letting people out on the streets before they were changed or not even changed. And they, the belief was that these people were going into the, back into the communities and committing new crimes or hurting other people, which just really wasn't the case. I mean, if you know anything about parole boards, they were made, they were made up of a collective of experts people who are criminal justice practitioners like lawyers, police officers, probation officers, but also people in the mental health field, people from the community. And all of them assessed this person's time while they were behind bars to see if in fact they did change. And if they found or they felt that this person did change and was no longer a threat to the community, then they would have them serve the rest of their time in the community, right? You would still be on parole. So if I had a five-year sentence, I served two behind bars, I get released on parole. I serve my remaining three under community supervision. Well, I still have to meet with a parole officer and things like that. But that also relieved the pressures and tax burdens of taxpayers because we were no longer paying for this individual to live behind bars. But a lot of this was, like you said, taking away that social service element. We're feeling like, you know what? We're being too weak on these individuals, being too soft. So we began to take funding away from parole boards, prison programming, like education programming, work programs, et cetera. And all of this became more of a punitive response where, especially during the 70s with Nixon and Reagan, right, this kind of law and order politics, where we've seen policies like truth and sentencing, meaning that people had to serve 85% of their time behind bar, behind bars now, right? When that stipulation wasn't there, then we see the introduction of mandatory minimums, which was first done by Governor Rockefeller in New York, right? I mean, the federal, had, federal government had some mandatory minimums, but they were very loose. But uh, Rockefeller was the first to really have strong, severe mandatory minimums for things like crack cocaine. Federal government liked that, and then they adopted those policies, right? Um, and I think what's important to know about this too is that one is that Rockefeller, before he became or got with these punitive policies with mandatory minimums, he actually tried to do a rehabilitative focus with drug addiction. It didn't work the way he wanted it to. So he said, you know what? There's nothing else we can do now but lock them up. Same thing with Nixon on his first term. A lot of the rhetoric and narrative that he said while in office was that we need to treat drug addiction as a public health issue. But when he was going for office in his second term, 
His opponent was talking the opposite. And so he had to adopt that same rhetoric to gain votes of being tough on crime and tough on drugs. Right. So initially and, th- and what you have to know, too, is that I think when you do anybody that deals with drug treatment, drug rehab, relapse is a part of the process. And I think a lot of politicians don't understand that. So they put these pop programs in place. People fail and then they say it doesn't work. But it takes a while for people to actually make these kind of changes uh, with with drug rehab, rehab programs. But anyway, right when we look at one of the important things to know about the also about the crack and coke crack and crack versus cocaine discrepancy was that cocaine was the more you know you need cocaine to make crack cocaine in its powder form. It's a very expensive drug. Cocaine has been in this country way, way, way before crack was introduced in that form. Cocaine has always been a drug used by the rich and the famous, pretty much affluent white folk, white males in particular. And then it was introduced in the 70s in a cheaper form. Right. So if you had about a gram of crack, especially in the 70s, it was worth about 10 to 15 dollars. While a gram of cocaine was worth about 100 dollars. OK. But in order to get locked up, this is where they talk about this hundred to one discrepancy. Right. So if you got five grams of crack which is okay, maybe about $70, $75 worth of, of a drug, right? You got a mandatory minimum five years. In order to get that same sentence for cocaine, you had to have 500 grams of it in this powdered form, okay? And so this begs the question, people were trying to say, why do we have this discrepancy? It's the same drug. You cannot make crack without cocaine, but why are these? Why are the laws being applied unequal? in that fashion. Mm-hmm. Well, mainly because crack was a drug being used in predominantly poor black communities while whites were still being used by the upper echelons of society. So that's an important distinction to make where you see the intention and the punitiveness of these policies and who they were targeting and how they were targeting it. Now, since in 2010, the Obama administration had the Fair Sentencing Act where they lowered that discrepancy. It's still not one to one. It's like 17 to one, 18 to one. You're still getting more, you're still getting more time for crack cocaine, but it's not as much. You still, you got, you got to have less cocaine and you can still get a mandatory minimum. But this is just a part of the conversation just to show you that how the intent play when we talk with regard to race and things of that nature during this time period too. I think uh, one interesting uh, note to also make is that although uh, crystallized um, rock, the crystallized rock form of cocaine was, you know, criminalized to an extent that the powder form wasn't, crystallized methamphetamine was also not because the White House at the time recognized that it was associated with lower income white people. So, you know, it is, I don't know, it got to be about race because even crystallized meth was not treated in the same way that crystallized cocaine was. So I, that's just, it, people, because I've, in recent conversations, I've heard people um, try to say that, you know, maybe when we think about like the difference in responses, and I know we haven't kind of gotten to this part of the conversation, but like the difference in response between, you know, the past and, and the present is, you know, the type of drugs or, you know, some are prescriptions and some are not. But when you even think about the historical, like you said, the historical response to um, powder cocaine or crystallized methamphetamine, it still didn't match uh, the outcome or the response um, of crystallized cocaine 
which was associated with black mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So, and even like you know, we see how crystal meth has been glorified in popular media such as Breaking Bad. Right? I mean, you know, oh yeah, you know, yeah. Movie, the show was you know, very popular. I watched it, uh, but even just how it was portrayed and and you know, it, it was it, 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 it's just interesting the differences in approach, especially during the time where crack was. Because um, this move, this this show was, you know, essentially while the show was happening, you know, meth was a huge problem, you know, in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a popular show, and I, I can imagine like if when crack cocaine was at its height, I don't think a show about that glorifying it and its use and the dealing of it wouldn't have been received just as well as it happening with Crystal Meth, with white actors, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so even in thinking about media portrayals, and I can even think about like black movies where, you know, you would see images of black people strung out on cocaine or strung out on crack. I don't recall seeing any of those like images of what we know people who are addicted to meth typically end up looking like. I never saw that in Breaking Bad. Yeah. I mean, I watched the entire show, but it was a very different yeah, That's um, very true. Portrayal. That is very true, right? The, the effects, the physical effects of meth, of meth, you know, you can see. Mm-hmm. And then you're right, like how they portray people on crack continuously, which was all in the media. That's interesting. They didn't really have that on the show and they were dealing with meth. We should have seen a lot more of that, of its effects. Um, so that's important. Yeah. And you see a lot of that in, in like you said, movies that, have like black drug dealers and stuff they'll sell the drugs to a a mom who's pregnant right some crack mm-hmm. and it's like this mm-hmm. oh man yeah. these drug these drug dealers are really bad look who they're selling drugs to but yet in breaking bad we yes. didn't see that right they're clearly selling drugs to a mom who's pregnant that's very interesting i'm glad you pointed that out because i really didn't pay 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 attention to those differences and how they portray just in that aspect yeah um and i i think that just those are right. I feel like those are racialized differences in how we think about drug addiction or, or abuse. I think it is when we think about Breaking Bad or even think about the, the meth epidemic or what happens. It is one of those issues. I feel like when we think about the portrayal of drugs and like Breaking Bad and like some of the more popular um, white dominated you know, drug dealing, popular entertainment pieces, they're portrayed as like victimless crimes. And like you said, when we think about the black portrayals or or portrayals of black drug addiction, you know, you see, like you said, the babies, you see the consequences of it. And it portrays the dealers as monsters, which I'm not I'm not going to take up for drug dealers, but you don't see the same demonization or criminalization or just portrayal of these white drug dealers who are destroying families and destroying communities as these evil criminals, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. Nope. Makes sense. Makes sense to me. One of the points we we can talk about now too is, you know, we see that the response has been racialized when they first talk about crack cocaine, why people, politicians jumped on that, but also what I want to highlight too is the bipartisan oh, aspects absolutely. to it, because I think we do live in an age where we like to assume that everything is the fault of Republicans and conservatives, it, but not when it comes to crime, <laughs> <laughs> not when it comes to crime and drug use uh, and drug responses. There has been a lot of bipartisan support 
to these issues when we talk about crime and, and, and drug Oh, oh absolutely. So kind of like I said, even going back to um, you can go back to Kennedy and look at his there was like a anti delinquency policy. And that that was kind of like where it started get, getting the ball rolling. But then when you think about Carter, you think about uh, Johnson, you think about our, you know, some people call him Uncle Joe. You think about Joe Biden. You know, his name is all up and through a bunch of legislation from the 80s. And like, so there was the bill. It was the uh, the Comprehensive Control Act of 1984. Um, I've read a lot and they say that is kind of like the legislation that marked the start of the war on drugs. You know who spearheaded that? Joe Biden, Joe Biden and Strom Thurmond. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like that, that increased the civil forfeiture aspect of like drug dealing, which actually made crime, like fighting drug crime, a very lucrative thing for police uh, departments Mm -hmm. who could seize people's assets, even if they weren't convicted of it, like they could still hold on to those things. So, you know, the drug business, it, it literally became a business for law enforcement agencies with that. And although I've seen, you know, some Democrats like kind of walk back on because, you know, I think Clinton was implicated, even Hillary Clinton. Well, that was a big thing for her. They were calling her out on that. But, uh, you know, I've seen them walk back on it, but it doesn't change the fact that like dog, like your name is all on this stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, civil asset forfeiture, that's a big one because you're right. It did make crime fighting profit profitable for law enforcement. It's where they were able to come in and seize pretty much property from people who were maybe affiliated. Sometimes they didn't even have to be guilty, but they were able to seize the assets of these individuals who may be affiliated with any kind of drug offense or drug dealing. And oftentimes they would use that and flip it. So popular during this time period where, you know, you would see police officers with really nice cars uh, and they were getting it from these drug forfeitures um, and, and civil, uh, civil asset forfeitures and they were making money off it. And it became an incentive for police officers and police departments to target these particular type of crimes specifically because it enhanced them and it also gave the government some leeway because they didn't have to be as hands-on as far as funding yep, these public entities. Yep, absolutely. Um, I would say another thing is around the war on drugs around the time that when that started, that it coincided with the creation of like the first private prison. The corporate uh, Corrections Corporation of America uh, was founded around the same time that the war on drugs was started and it opened its first private prison in Texas in the 80s. And so the government also began to like, oh, we can be a little bit more hands off, you know, because one, like I said, 20 years prior, like the the number of people incarcerated had already increased. But then when we get to the war on drugs, it is like becoming like exponential in terms of like the increases in the amount of people populated. And we just didn't have enough prisons at the time to house all of these people. And then that's when the government gets in bed with private corporations who have every incentive to make a profit from crime from crime fighting. So it's kind of like, it's just interesting to see how all of these things come together when 
crime becomes profitable for police departments, but then you also have private entities who have a interest in not reducing crime, but simply arresting more offenders. Like private prisons, there there's no profit in public health responses to drugs and to other issues because that's bad for business. So it's interesting to see mm-hmm. how that private prisons got their start around the same time that the war on drugs, which targeted African-American communities and Latinos, we can't forget them. Um, it started at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's always important to know, right? Capitalist enterprise is always keeping their eyes on the market. The market can be different things like commerce, but it can also be things like criminal justice. Um, and even to date, I know this conversation about capitalists trying to find ways to promote and also profit off of technology. So everything now is about, oh, let's reduce incarceration, overpopulation. So they're actually trying to take ways as far as like using technology. So like, okay, instead of going to jail for 10 years, you'll essentially be on this kind of monitoring system for 10 years, right? Where it's like an ankle bracelet or something like that, uh, where we keep track of you and your whereabouts. You have to come in and check in. You have to pay a fee to have this on instead of going to jail. So it's kind of like, oh, instead of taxpayers paying for this device, you know, the, the culprits or the perpetrators will, but also these companies now are moving in that direction too, because they understand that private prisons and things like that are not going to be lucrative anymore because of the response against it. So they're now already thinking ahead of the ball, like, okay, what are ways we can make money? So if people aren't going to go to prison. What else will people find acceptable? So now they're going to start introducing legislation as far as like these kind of home monitoring systems or whatever it is where people have to pay. And that's more money coming into their pockets as well. So you have to pay attention to, you know, how this works and how they also influence politics. I think, too, one thing when we talk about bipartisan relationships or, or just support, right, Bill Clinton had a big role in this, especially with his 1994 Violent Crime Bill uh, Act that was passed. But within that, he had a lot of little nuanced things that people really don't highlight. Um, of course, there are a lot of things that when we talk about super predator theory that Hillary took a lot of brunt of. Um, and then, of course, mandatory minimums, three strikes policy. But there's one in particular that was related to drug offenses that I think really helped in disrupting the black community was this one strike you're out initiative with hub, with housing and urban development. And with this meant that if you had a drug offense in particular, you were not allowed to live in public housing. Also, right, what, what what this was about is that if you were caught living in public housing, so I had a drug offense, I served five years, I come out, my parents are living in public housing, they let me stay with them for a little bit. If I was caught living there, they wouldn't only evict me, they would evict my entire family, right? And so now you're putting not just the individual in a weird situation who was once incarcerated, but also the entire family, which makes it harder for them to reconnect and be a support system for this person who has been recently re, uh, released out the system. And so with that, right, if you think about it, how that can impact, well, oh, we see during this same time period, a rise in single mom headed households, right? Um, we see also a rise on social welfare support, right? So if you are only having a certain income, Right. Then you if you have over a certain income, you won't be qualified for welfare anymore. So not only is it stopping this black male from coming to live in with the family and the kids, but also because of the financial support. If he comes in with any other extra income that may jeopardize my chances of welfare. 
right? Um, so it's like systemically and institutionally, they are not only just locking up black males in particular for minor drug offenses, but they're also making it so that they cannot be a part of the bl- their black yeah. families, right? And we know with with when it comes to st- the higher amount of single parent households, the, the increased odds of living in poverty, right? People are not working because you're relying on social welfare, which means you're not getting jobs, you're not getting paychecks where tax are coming out of. Those local taxes are what is used to, to support public school systems and parks and after school systems, et cetera, after school programs and all that kind of stuff, right? So you see how this kind of completely decimates uh, the infrastructure of these communities when you're putting these policies in place and also making it hard for people to be economically stable too. And it's so it's also important that you mention that because there was just a study released today um, I believe from Stanford and Harvard researchers that kind of talked about, um, I mean, the purpose of the study was not about black fathers, but they were trying to understand like economic disparities between blacks and whites. And, you know, they looked at uh Black boys versus uh, white boys and black girls versus white uh, girls. And what they found is like, regardless of income, like when it comes to like lower income boys, one of the factors that matters most for their long term success is father in the home or just having fathers in the neighborhood, but having that male presence. So it's so interesting, interesting that you mentioned that because even more than money, that male presence in the home or just broadly in the neighborhood can make the difference in outcomes, especially for black boys. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like so many governmental policies from that time has, they have had devastating impacts on the black community. And it has been so cumulative in nature from social welfare policies to uh, criminal justice or injustice policies. When you think about how all of these things accumulate to shape the current outcomes we have, not just in terms of mass incarceration, but when you think about educational outcomes, when you think about the ongoing family structure, because I mean, broken family structures, sometimes we get more broken family structures. Uh, when you think about economic inequality, all of this leads back to very targeted policies that were implemented and developed by both Democrats and Republicans in the 70s and 80s, and often in response to the progress that we were supposed to be making post-civil rights movement. It's kind of devastating when you think about the role in the government of the government in stifling the progress, particularly of Black Americans since the 60s. This is all by design. And through our policy mm-hmm. outcomes. And that's why, you know, I, I probably say something about this every single time. But this is why elections are so important. I mean, I, I know there are a lot of people that might come at me and like, well, hell, they're both deciding if Democrats and Republicans both participated in it. But for me, I see it as like we need to get some new blood in here because we can't have people doing the same old thing or trying to target the same conservative or quasi-conservative people who are not for the progress of people of color. So, yep, yep, exactly. And I think, and I think this brings us to our current situation when we talk about the opioid epidemic as the common 
theme and, and, and phrase thrown around now when we talk about our current drug problem. And there are stark differences with that. Within the past 10, 15, 20 years, we've been seeing more and more overdose and deaths related to heroin overdose in particular and opioid addiction. And then now within the political sphere and, and conversation, we've been seeing more uh, rhetoric as far as how to address this and fix it. And the response has been the complete opposite of what we've seen with the crack cocaine epidemic, where that response was largely about locking people up, locking people up. They're bad, demonizing them, uh, you know, crack fat, crack moms and crack whores and all this other kind of stuff. Where now we're seeing a much more softer approach when it comes to opioid addiction. I think a big reason for that, and what we kind of said in the beginning of this discussion, is the fact that this has largely been an issue that has been happening with white Americans, mainly white Americans, middle class white Americans as well. And one of the reasons, and this is just a kind of theory that I have about it, is that, of course, when it comes with economic power, you also have political power. And I think what's been happening is that these kids have been overdosing on heroin. And then I think the parents actually began to find themselves in a similar position that many of the black parents found themselves during the crack mm-hmm. epidemic. It's like, what do I do? What can I do? And on one end, it's like, wow, I know my child is addicted to these drugs, but if I go get help, is there help? No, because all we really have is a criminal justice response where I can't really go to the police because they can get in trouble. If I go to some public health practitioners, they may be obligated to turn them over to the police. So now I'm in a situation where I have no resources to help my child who is addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. And this is why we're seeing more legislation being pushed to decriminalize uh, drug addicts and the response to them because a lot of these white parents are now finding that there's no other options. Mm-hmm. And this is the same predicament that many black parents had too when it came to the crack epi- epidemic. But the only options that were, they had was locking up their sons and daughters too. So I think that's very eye-opening, compelling, and very um, pr- troublesome in a lot of ways too. I agree. Um, I also think there is a... So you mentioned heroin and I actually, I was reading up and it looks like the rise in heroin use among uh, white people and affluent white people is actually related to, it's related to the opioid crisis, which, you know, there for a long time, doctors were loose and fast with, you know, prescription narcotics, oxycodone, hydrocodone and things of that nature. And within recent years, there has been like a tightening um, and more legislation as well as systems to detect patients who might be going to different clinics or different doctors to receive these uh, narcotic prescription drugs. And as the reins are tightening on the prescription drugs, that is when people have been turning to heroin and the harder drugs that were not typically associated with affluent suburban people. So I think that's one Mm -hmm. thing to um, 
note about that. Um, and it's another thing to note that I find interesting about the opioid epidemic and why there might be racial disparities in this particular epidemic in terms of who are the opioid addicts is that, you know, given that a lot of this started with prescription drug abuse, you know, it should be noted that the other side of this opioid epidemic is the fact that black patients or patients of color are often undertreated in terms of pain management. They are given fewer or weaker opioid prescriptions. And maybe that could be related to past stereotypes about, you know, drug use and like the the 80s crack or heroin um, epidemic. But either way it go in our current times, you know, black people have have a difficult time even getting their pain treated by doctors. Mm -hmm. So I I think Mm -hmm. that's actually very interesting. Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. One, yeah, there have been studies that have shown that doctors are less likely to prescribe pain killing medication to black people. Some of it actually stems not only from the idea of drug addiction, but because they feel like black people have a higher pain tolerance, tolerance, (laughs) which is very interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, But what I find fascinating about this whole opioid crisis is the fact that it's almost like their own privilege is kicking them in the butt. Mm, Because when you talk about who has access to health care, we know that that comes with, you know, SES or an SES and economic standing being middle class, but white folks have generally always had better access to healthcare. And so with that comes this, okay, when people are having certain ailments and stuff like that, these doctors were over-prescribing opioids. There was actually a study that came out last week, CNN exclusive, I think it was from Harvard, uh, where they actually found that pharmaceutical companies would pay doctors more money the more they the more they prescribe opioid drugs and medication. So the more a doctor prescribed opioids, the more money they got in their pockets from pharmaceutical companies. So I think this this, this goes hand in hand. This whole opioid ep- epidemic probably definitely is stemming from the encouragement of pharmaceutical companies to pay, pay doctors. But it's also interesting, too, when we talk about, again, this privilege where white middle class people have access to it. And when I'm sitting in the court a lot of times, you know, observing a lot of the drug addiction that was happening that I seen in the black communities was because people were self-medicating because they didn't have access to healthcare, mm. right? A lot of the times the judge would ask somebody, you know, why are you using this particular drug? And this person would say, so I don't hear these voices in my head anymore, right? So they're suffering, but because they don't have access to, to healthcare, they go to the illicit drug market mm. that helps them and helps medicate them. And then of course they get addicted as a response. And so I think what's happening now with the opioid addiction is that these kids are privileged. They get prescribed these opioids. The prescription runs out. Maybe they, they're not, they don't have the issue anymore, but they still have that addiction in place. And then they go to heroin, right? To, because they're now addicted to it and either they don't know how to use it, maybe because it's just a culture not familiar to them. And then they wind up overdosing and dying. And so now the response is let's be softer on these individuals, which is not wrong, but you know, this is not anything new in in our country and what's been going on too. I think it's also interesting because when the, when the rise of these narcotic drugs uh, and overdoses began to happen in white communities. Didn't they start arming police officers with Narcon or Narcan to actually reverse 
um, the overdose. You know what I'm talking about? They've, they've been giving them like little like needles or some kind of like medication, which if somebody is overdosing or or some kind of having some issue when it comes to opioids specifically, they were giving police officers these things to actually help save that person, at least until paramedics arrive or something along those lines. Yep. Yeah, but that was not historically the response. And I'm not going to be mad that they're saving people's lives. And I don't want anybody to get get it twisted. We're not saying like, oh, you know, these people should be punished in the same way. There just has to be some recognition of the damage that was caused to other communities. And we need to make sure that the same responses are hap- are still happening because, you know, it could still be disparities in who's being criminalized for drug use and abuse and who's getting treatment. I mean, we see all the time the way justice is dealt in, in different ways, depending on somebody's race. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's happening is that these particular pockets and constituents are who are pushing for this. When the government begins to support this more, there's going to be funds put in place to create centers and provide these resources. And so I think this is where we're going to see the biggest forms of inequality as far as who gets those funds. It will not be the communities, the poor communities It's going to be the communities who are asking for it the most. And right now it's these middle class communities. I think this is um, a problem. Because, uh, again, it's like this weird situation, right? Like, I understand, like, we do need to, kids should not be dying off of opioids and heroin, and, and it should be something that should be fixed. But I honestly will not support any legislation that is just solely focused on opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, this mm-hmm. is what I tell my students in my class. I said, you can do what you want, but I feel like if we're going to tackle addiction, then we need to have that open to all types of addiction. I feel like when we begin to specify the drug, and create plans on just opioids, then I think that is very problematic because it's only going to really help a particular group of people in particular demographic. And we know who that is. And so I think if we, I think it's, it's fair, the fairest way to be like, we have an addiction problem in this country. We have a problem with drugs. And so if you have an issue with crack, if you have an issue with opioids, if you have an issue with meth or alcohol, whatever it is, then you will be able to be qualified to obtain and use these resources. But it's interesting if it's just for opioids, and somebody comes in with a crack addiction, will they be denied? Will they not qualify? That's what I'm fearful of. And I don't think that's fair. So I'm, I'm all for treating addiction, but I'm not just for treating one type of addiction. I'm for treating all types of addiction. I agree. I think that's the way to do it, because that was the issue in the past, you know, distinguishing between crystallized uh, cocaine and powder, you know, differentiating between crack and, you know, crystal meth. You can't mm-hmm. do those things because it's a way of making racialized policy without saying it is racialized. But we know we see you. Um, yep. So kind of thinking about like the governmental or current governmental responses. Trump just put out a plan. It's a three pronged plan. And mm-hmm. one of the responses to the opioid crisis or epidemic or drugs in general, he mentioned giving the death penalty to drug dealers. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think it's insane. Um, One is because it's just too punitive. That's just the same tough on crime, tough on drugs rhetoric that he got from his predecessors. Nothing new there. Uh, There's no way that I believe any person who is selling drugs should die uh, and get the death penalty. It's just not a realistic and and 
appropriate penalty. Um, and I think especially it's very hypocritical in a sense and very interesting that he would propose this because when you're looking at how these kids and how these people are being addicted to uh, opioids, it's not from heroin, right? They already have the addiction by the time they're going to heroin because they're actually getting it, the addiction from legitimate spaces like the doctor's office. And so now you are punishing a drug dealer who is supplying somebody for their addiction, but the addiction stemmed from a doctor, mm-hmm. right? And so the doctor's not going to get the death penalty, but this person who's trying to make a little bit of change on the street is up for the death penalty. I think that's ridiculous, right? Especially when we're talking about opioid addiction in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, hmm, who are you really targeting now, Trump? Right. If you're really trying to tra- target the source of addiction, then you need to have more regulations and light put on uh, uh, medical professionals. But right now you're seeing like, oh, we need to really, really punish these drug dealers, but they're not the cause of these addictions overall. I so agree. So kind of reflecting on our conversation, um, particularly when we think about the historical response to drug addiction and drug um, dealing and the current response, although they, they do have the, like you said, the very punitive, let's give drug dealers the death penalty. But like you said, the way that would actually be handled would be very different uh, than what we would expect. It, it wouldn't actually target doctors. Um, but there seems to be I, I think race is a part of it, but I think it's a race issue in a sense that the current face of addiction is white and young. Um, is like you said, it's a class issue. In the eighties, it was poor black people mm-hmm. that often faced this issue versus now is more affluent white people. And I mean, even with meth, which is typically associated with like lower income whites, I, I still haven't seen the same like type of criminal response. Nope. And it's also a place issue. When we think about in the eighties where this was happening, it was happening in the inner cities. Mm-hmm. Um, where black people were concentrated versus now it's happening to, you know, the next door neighbor in the suburbs yeah. It's happening to that child that I see play, you know, football for Friday night lights. You get what I'm saying? So it's yeah. just kind of like, it is a race class and place issue in why we see the differences in response, at least in my opinion. Yep, it is. And I think, you know, hopefully, you know, we've highlighted some of this in today's discussion. And these are things we have to pay attention to because we see policy being put out there about it. And if we don't want to make the same mistakes over and over and over again, then we have to make changes and we have to hold our politicians responsible for these changes. You know, we see what Trump is proposing. Um, Okay, why is he doing this? Why are we still having that tough on crime rhetoric? Well, it's to appease a certain constituent, right, Uh, which which we've largely seen. But even in that proposal, he has two other things, such as having fewer prescriptions where he is addressing some of the issues going on with the medical field and then more treatment options, but mainly for opioid addiction. And with some of these treatment options, it's from opioid addiction stemming from medical treatment. Right. So I'm very I'm very curious to see how this is going to play out. And I think we all need to pay attention to this because the more if they get the more specific they get means they're only trying to have these these resources benefit one one particular demographic. 
So if we're going to say opioid addiction, then it should be anybody addicted to opioid. But if we're going to say people only addicted who have public health access, I mean, health access and opportunity, then it's going to it's going to take out a large subset of the population, mainly poor folk around the country. Um, and so we just got to pay real close attention because this is kind of dog whistle politics all over again, where they're being very specific and strategic of who will benefit from addiction and these services. Um, and, I, and, you know, as, as black folk, we definitely cannot take this lightly because at the end of the day, it's going to hurt us. <laughs> it's not going to hurt nobody else. Right? It's going to hurt us for sure. But other than that, um, you know, I think this was a, a good conversation to have. And I'm sure this will be popping up and more conversations we'll have because um, this is just this, this war on drugs conversation is a part of it, it, it's the ramifications of it are embedded in a lot of the things we see that are happening in, in the black community today. And so it'd be hard not to talk about it in other topics and conversations. But I think we just wanted to spend some time today just to really highlight as much as we can about it. We definitely couldn't cover it all, but hopefully we just want you all to pay attention to what's going on currently in current events and politics with regard to this and making sure that our voice is still heard on the table. And we do get a piece of that pie. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, as always, we appreciate you guys listening to us. Catch us on uh, our social media at BHD Podcast. Email us at uh, bhdpodcast at gmail.com. Um, review, rate, comment. I see some of you have actually begun to do that. We've got a couple more ratings on our iTunes. So thank you for that. I think I saw that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we don't take that lightly. So whoever's out here listening to us and, and doing this for us, we, we greatly, we really, really appreciate it. Um, and other than that, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.